Uh, we heard uh, uh, how we are in the world but not of the world, and we're following on to that with because we're in the world, how do we not just survive, but how do we thrive in the world in which we have been placed? And so we started out a few weeks ago by look, we've been looking at three things, and the first thing was we thrive through hope in this world. We can thrive through the hope, and we've been uh, looking at the life of Daniel specifically and how Daniel survived in the wicked kingdom of Babylon, and he didn't just survive, but he thrived in that kingdom. And the first thing we saw was that he thrived through hope, and the hope that he had was that God was in control no matter what. We read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, that verse starts out, it says, and the Lord gave, and then it goes on to say all the bad stuff that happened to Israel. And yet Daniel held on to those words that the Lord was still in control, and the Lord did all this. It may not look good, it may not look all that great right now. I've lost my family, I'm in a foreign kingdom, I have to serve in a foreign kingdom, but the Lord is still in control. And so I understand that while I may face skirmishes, if you will, in my life, I can uh, stand with assurance in the hope that the battle has already been won. I know it may get tough in the moment, but in the big picture, I know that he has already won the battle. The victory is already assured. And so that's where my hope is secured, not in feelings. It's not secured in my external circumstances, but it's secured in a victory that has already been won. And so there, should be not, there shouldn't be the fear and trepidation that we have, the anxiousness that we have. And we mentioned like when you're watching an event live and you're not sure what's going to happen in the ball game, you're not sure what's going to take place because this is not in, not, not in every sense of the word, but it's like watching a replay. You know what's going to happen. And in the same way, I know what's going to happen in the end. The Lord wins. Amen. The cliche, you read the back of the book and he wins. Maybe that would help us in some of our circumstances Amen. if we would remember that. And we also understand that the church is moving forward, that the church is not on the defensive as culture, society, and perhaps even the church world would have you believe, but we are on the offensive because uh, Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates are closed, hell is in a defensive position, and they still can't handle the church with all their defenses up. So I'm not going to back down or quit. If it gets rough, I might do what Paul says and simply stand, but I know that I'm on the winning side. And so Daniel understood that. He was anchored in hope, and that's how he thrived was through hope. We also looked last week how he thrived because of his approach. So why he thrived was because he had hope in something eternal, something secure. How he thrived was in his approach to things was with humility. And we saw, we, we looked at how humility in today's society and the way we view humility is often a sign of weakness, of the idea of being a doormat for somebody, that people just walk all over those, all over you. But biblical humility is not uh, that at all. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, humility is at the core of Christian morality, that without humility you cannot have Christian morality. We read that the first thing that Christ did when he came to this earth was not redemption, was not healing, but the first thing that had to happen is that he humbled himself. And if I'm to be Christ-like, the first thing I need to do is experience humility, which I do at an altar of repentance, and it's an altar that I should keep visiting of repentance so that I am humbled continually in my life. 
We also talked about pride and what pride is and what pride isn't, or what humility is and what humility isn't. We looked at false pride, which really we looked at how it negates the fact that God can do anything in us and through us. When we just downplay everything, it, it, it just negates that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It, it negates all of those things. And then there was that, that quote from the Harvard psychologist where he's not religious at all, but he said that most neuroses, remember that's all your issues, all your hang-ups, all your phobias, all your anxiousness, all your indecisiveness, all of that stuff. He said at the end of that quote, he talked about them all, he said from a religious viewpoint, all of these neuroses are based in self-centeredness and pride. All of those issues that we think are part of humility, well, I just don't want to offend, I just don't want to hurt, it still all revolves around I. And from a non-religious psychologist, he said from a religious viewpoint, it looks just like pride. So, and then we also looked how we are to approach all people with humility. And scripture tells us, of course, that we know as brothers and sisters that we are to submit ourselves one to another. But it also talks about governments. It also talks about people in general, that I'm supposed to humble myself as well to be a servant to others, not just to a brother or sister. And we see how Daniel exemplified this. He did not pound his fist. He did not get all up in everyone's face when he began to stand for truth. No, he exhibited humility with a calm, quiet confidence. And somehow, despite the fact that he wasn't up in someone's face, he accomplished what God wanted to do. And so I'm challenged when I face situations, I'm challenged when I face people, that although I understand that I'm supposed to submit myself within the church, sometimes it's real hard to submit myself to a sinner. But we looked at Daniel and how when he was interpreting the king's dream, the king who had destroyed his life absolutely, he said, O king, I know your dream and the interpretation. I wish it was for your enemies and not you. I'd wish it was for him. And I'd tell him that to his face. No. (laughs) But he remained submissive and humble while standing for truth. And Daniel is an example that it can be done. And this week we're going to finish looking at how we can thrive In the midst of all of this, we can thrive with hope, we thrive with humility, and this week we are looking at thriving uh, through wisdom, through wisdom. And I prayed for wisdom in this lesson, and I pray I don't get off on a tangent. (laughs) Because I think on every page there's a tangent, a little rabbit clip art. But I want to emphasize again, I mentioned this before, I want to emphasize again that these three must be taken together. It is with hope and humility and wisdom that I'm going to thrive in this present world. They are a package that must go together. Okay, So understand that. And and understand that as we talk about wisdom and some of the things we're going to talk about, it can get a little sticky there. But my, my attitude of humility is what's going to make it work. Now all three of these require me, this is important as well to look at, all three of these, if I'm to utilize these in my life, they're going to require me to take a more mature look at my life. They're going to take a more mature walk with God. It's necessary because all three of these things are going to require a perspective in my life that requires maturity. It takes a perspective to take the long view of hope. It's going to take perspective to to treat some people with humility. It's going to take perspective in some of these situations with wisdom. And you know what? When we, if I was to go back there to kids' church and I was to ask them, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you uh, a, a one-hour trip to a candy store. 
And you can have anything that you want. You can just like open all the containers and just let them pour in your mouth for one hour. Or I'm going to pay for two years of college education for you. What would you take? What would you take? Well, what, what should you take? How about that? I see a few people saying, hmm, which candy store? The, the right choice would be two years of college education. But that's the long view. As a mature person, I hope you would realize that the long-term goal is a lot better than just momentary pleasure. In the same way, boy, I'd really like to get out of Babylon, but the long-term view is God has a plan, and even though it looks bad now, God's still in control. So these are going to require a mature outlook as far as Christianity goes in my walk with God, which sometimes is a whole lot more difficult. So as adult Christians, we have to realize that God's in control no matter what. As a mature Christian, I have to realize that I have to approach all people humbly and that humility, although not immediate results happen, will win out in the end because it's God's way. And it takes a mature Christian in wisdom to step back and have perspective and realize, and this is worth speaking specifically of Babylon. This isn't a, a study on wisdom in general. This is speaking specifically of thriving in Babylon. And the wisdom that I'm speaking about is that there's some things worth fighting for and some that aren't. I just can get a little bit sticky. A little bit sticky. We find the psalmist gives us some insight into the beginnings of wisdom. Psalms chapter 110 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. We find in this passage that the fear of the Lord is the source of wisdom. If you don't care about God, you cannot be wise. And I would venture to say, unfortunately, in a lot of uh, general mainstream Christianity and in the world in general, there is, has been a, a loss uh, uh, of that fear of God. People no longer fear disobeying God. <laughs> Sometimes, even in our own life, we know that it's not right, but we don't fear disobeying God enough to not do it. The reason that we don't fear God enough is because we don't know Him well enough. You see, if you just ask people about God, they know that you're supposed to love everyone and not judge anybody. They, they know all that stuff, and God is a God of love, and justice is a part of Him. But throughout Scripture, it's very plain to see that He is a God that should be feared, and the psalmist tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That fear has been lost. And we see that fear and obedience are connected in this verse, that, that if I fear God, I'm going to obey Him. I'm going to do what's right. And sometimes that gets a little difficult because, you know what, there's things that God asked me to do that I don't want to do. So what's going to override? My way or my fear of God? <laughs> and I'd venture to say that the times when I choose not to do what He says is because I really don't know God all that well. If I knew God the way I should, I would understand that while there's love and compassion, I really don't want to mess with God. We talked about that with pride, how that God resists the proud. He sets himself in battle array against you. And it doesn't say just in that area. He sets himself against you in your life. Try accomplishing something in your life when God is set up against you. Not too much is going to happen. We can't say that we fear God but then don't obey him. 
Daniel and his friends understood that the fear of God was the start of everything. That's how Daniel and, and the situations and the three Hebrew children, his friends and the situation, the fiery furnace and the lions, then we see all that. We see how they could face those and make the right decision because they knew what to fear. See, I think a lot of the times we're afraid of the wrong stuff. We're afraid of the furnace. We're afraid of the lion's den. And really, we should be fearing God. If we feared God, the lions and the fiery furnace wouldn't seem such a big deal. Because I know that God is bigger. I know that God is greater. I know that He's more powerful. Yet I fear the circumstance more than God. And so I end up disobeying God. They feared disobeying God far more than the fire. So the challenges come within our own lives, within society, within Christian circles, at culture as a whole. That fear of the Lord has been lost. Daniel also demonstrates this. He, he understands that fear of the Lord and the wisdom that's there. And I, I want us to understand, I do understand the difference here, that he is in a society in which he does not have the upper hand. He is definitely by far in the minority. And so we understand uh, that this is a little bit different than the society you and I face, but we understand also that as in the minority, the fear of the Lord still tells him not only what to fear, but when to fear what. Hmm. Now, again, I understand we are in a different situation right now, us sitting in this building. We live in America. We don't live in Babylon. And I understand that as a country, we are trying to keep some semblance of good morals, we're trying to keep Christianity at the forefront in some way, and it becomes more and more difficult as the days go by. So we understand that, that Daniel is in the midst of darkness. In Babylon, that is used to describe the world in Revelation as bad as it gets, we are not in that situation. We are almost trying to hold back darkness, it would seem, at this point. So with that being said, we have opportunities available to us that Daniel did not. I can voice my opinion in ways that Daniel could not. I'm thankful that I live in a country that has the freedoms that it does. We've just had July 4th yesterday, and I'm thankful that I live in this country. I'm thankful that I didn't have to drive six, uh, take six different ways to church over the past six weeks so no one would follow me, so I wouldn't get arrested on the way home. I'm glad that I can stand up here and say what I want to say and offend you, <laughs> and it's your problem, not the government's. <laughs> I'm glad I live in a country that's like that. I, I value that. And so I understand that, that Daniel could not go to the polling place and, and cast his ballot uh, voting Nebuchadnezzar out. I understand that it is a slightly different thing. I also understand as well that because I have been born in this country, I was born here, by the way. I just didn't live here my first part of my life, but I was born here in the hills of West Virginia. So really, I'm more redneck than anybody here. I escaped with all my teeth. I'm from there. I, I can say what I want. But God allowed me to be born in a country and live in a country that has freedoms. As such, I need to understand that I should be a good steward, not just of my time, not just of my money, but of the freedom God has given me. I should be a good steward and use it wisely. That's why I shouldn't be ambivalent when it comes time to vote, because I should be a steward of the freedoms that I have. It's not that it's anti-biblical to not vote, that there's a verse that says you should go vote. No, I should be a steward of the freedom that God has given me. Now, I've talked about the country. I do want to I'll make sure... I'm not going to talk about the Second Amendment tonight, so some of you can rest easy. I know I've talked about that a few times. 
No Second Amendment tonight. But when we look carefully at the life of Daniel, it's a very interesting life. Because we see with him and his friends, there's the refusal to bow down at the statue. We see Daniel continuing to pray despite decrees that have been passed, making prayer illegal of any sort. We see that he and his friends refuse to eat at the king's table. We're not eating that food. And those are the stories we hear in Sunday school. But it's a very interesting story of Daniel because on the other side, this was also a man that accepted his name being changed from a Hebrew name to uh, Belteshazzar, which means Baal's prince. That was the main god of Babylon. He, he, every time they said his name, they said Baal's prince. They reminded him of the idolatrous place he was in. He was also a man that right after he refused eating of the king's food, immediately was taken into a program and taught sorcery and witchcraft for three years. And let me tell you, he didn't sit there and just make his way through it. He graduated top of his class in witchcraft. They didn't tell you that in Sunday school, did they? He most likely studied the entrails of animals, how to read them, all that stuff. Babylon was a wicked, wicked place. And he was trained, and Scripture says he wasn't just good, he was ten times better. And you know why he was ten times better? Scripture tells us God gave him wisdom and understanding. Oh, wow, now that gets, that's a tangent there. So here's Daniel, the lion's den guy. He could cast a spell on anyone for anything. He could do all that stuff. This is the guy that we're supposed to stand up and be like. So it's a little confusing. This is why Daniel needed wisdom because if you Google Daniel, you'll find all these lessons about standing for truth, standing up for righteousness, standing up for whatever. But it looks to me like he laid down quite a few times as well. He had wisdom. Wisdom tells me when. Wisdom tells me when. Now, I understand as well that there's a little bit, uh, you have to understand this about it, because these were not necessarily free will choices, if you will, because Daniel was facing do this or die, okay? So a lot, most of the times when I make a bad decision, it's, it's not, there's death on the other hand, okay? So I, there, I understand that there's a difference as well, but I also have to understand that there's not death on the other side, so I should have no, no uh, reason to not make the right choice, because <laughs> I'm not going to die. He was not presented with a course catalog of classes that he could take, and he chose witchcraft because that's just where my talents lead me. I'm passionate. He had no choice, okay? His choices were to do it or die, and so most of us are not faced with these choices. I understand that. But the confusing part is that he did not stand for all truth. He stood for truth sometimes, which was a result of wisdom. Now, this is not to tear down the character of Daniel because I think he was wise in what he did. We see the end result. The end result was that he lived was, uh, through, throughout all of this wickedness. He was a light in darkness to three separate kings. Three separate kings called upon him and saw that, who the real true God was because of how he conducted his life. It seems like really the best result happened from the situation that he was put in. Perhaps we can learn something from the way that Daniel stood for truth and when he stood for truth. You see, wisdom allowed him to have a greater perspective. And his combination of hope, humility, and wisdom caused him to realize, again, that there were some battles that were worth fighting for and some that weren't. I don't have to die on every hill. Because when I die, I'm dead. 
This doesn't now, again, in our brains, we, despite the fact that we, we like to say we're middle of the road in our brains, we go extreme. So you're saying we should just not do anything. Just let the world have its way. Just say, you know what, sin, come on in. No. No. But you know what, I don't have to get all up in arms about everything either. You know what? That wears on you after a while. And we're going to talk about it, what's at the root of it, and why I'm here as well. Okay? Um, I really wanted to bring up some topics, but, you know, then that... I'll just throw one out there. How many of you are real concerned about they're taking Christ out of Christmas? When Christians can't even agree if we should celebrate Christmas because it's on a pagan holiday. But we're concerned that there's an X instead of Christ. Is that really a hill worth dying on? I'm, I'm going to explain a little bit of something about it to you as well. Well, first of all, this has nothing to do with it, but you know why the X is there? It's because it was the X that was used to ride on the caves and the catacombs in Rome that stood for Christos, which was the name of Christ. So it's actually more Greek Christmas correct than Christmas is. Should I boycott stuff? Should I boycott stuff? Well, they give to this, they give to that. Should I boycott things? Another character in, in Scripture that's, that's kind of interesting is, is Esther. We know the story started out how Esther got in there was that Vashti refused to be paraded around. The king called for her to show off her beauty, and this was an evil king. She did not come uh, clothed as modestly as you might hope, and she refused to do that. Esther... It's called to the king's palace. She hides her identity. You don't like when your kids do that. You tell them it's lying anyway. She spent months in the fashion world prepping her image. She was a part of a group of women that was chosen based upon spending one night with the king. You can read into that whatever you will. Yet we view Esther as a paragon of virtue because she saved a nation. God's never mentioned in the book. She did things that we probably wouldn't condone nowadays, just like Daniel. Yet somehow they, th they thrived in Babylon. I believe wisdom plays a part. We see it happen in the New Testament too. In the New Testament, they chose not to fight certain battles. We read in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, it's those famous verses where they're called before the Sanhedrin, and they tell them, don't preach about Jesus anymore. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And I used this last week about, you can read into that, those words were not spoken uh, proudly or banging their fist on the table, but in the spirit of humility. Hey, you judge. I have to do what, I'm, uh, what God's called me to do. However, we take those words and we apply them to every situation. I'm just going to stand up and fight for everything. Let God be the judge. You can't tell me what to do. I'm standing up for righteousness. I'm standing up for truth. But you know what? It's real interesting because if you ever re read the book of Philemon, that's an interesting book. It's written to, to a, a slave owner about his slave. And he's telling them both to respect each other. But he never once says slavery is wrong. To me, that seems like a prime opportunity. They chose not to fight certain battles. Jesus and the apostles chose not to involve themselves in a battle against a tyrannical government. Well, we, sh we need to get rid of tyranny. Didn't become involved in it. They didn't become involved even when the emperor Nero was lying about them, killing thousands and thousands of people. They didn't become involved in it. They chose not to fight for equality, 
while they said certain things are sin, and I want to make clear that I do believe in sin and that things are wrong, and Scripture is very clear that some things are sin, but you know what? There was no, there was no church-wide cause to stamp out sexual perversion in their world. They said, don't have it in the church. Hmm. Very clear about how to deal with it in the church, but they, they, they didn't, they weren't, uh, well, anyway. Let me just say, we spend a lot of time trying to correct culture and societal problems And we get upset when culture speaks something against the Word of God. They chose to speak in in those verses 4, 19, and 20. They chose to speak their testimony and to stand up for the name of Jesus. I I think it's very important for us to understand one thing that we should fight for is the name of Jesus. Scripture tells us there's coming a time when there's, there's going to be people that have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. I firmly believe that that power they're denying is the name of Jesus. Because that's where all power is. And there's going to be people uh, uh, proclaiming the name of Jesus. They're going to be proclaiming God and what might be perceived by some as truth. But it's not truth. Because they're denying the power of the name of Jesus. And they spoke their testimony. And we heard about that Sunday. The power of my testimony. They were not standing up spouting their opinions. They were spouting what we have seen and heard that God has done. They were spouting off and telling people about their experiences. They can only have an experience when you've been with God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, and that's, that, that changes from person to person, live peaceably with all the church. Live peaceably with the pastor. Live peaceably with all men. That's a struggle sometimes. You know why? Because the world is different. Now, I'm getting ready to just rock your world right now. Just hold on. There's something that we have to understand about the world. And this may come as a shock. Sinners act like sinners. Non-Christians don't live and believe like Christians. That means they don't live like we do. They don't think like we do. They don't ascribe to the values that we hold true. They don't act and believe the things that we do. And we have to understand that because most of our angst today, most of our anger and distress comes when sinners act like sinners. Now, again, I understand where we are in our society and a culture today and that we are in a society and culture that has been predominantly held to Christian values and it seems like that's shifting, so I understand there's that pull there. But why are we shocked when sinners sin? Why do we get mad at them? Why are we surprised when culture takes a sharp turn? What did you think it was going to do? Why why are we surprised when gay marriage becomes legal? Why are we surprised? And I understand because we've held certain values, but sinners sin. They don't hold our values. Why am I surprised when marriage laws changed? Why why am I surprised that Roe versus Wade passed? Now, in myself, I'm disappointed that our country has done that. But why am I shocked that sinners are acting like sinners and not doing right? I'm upset because they're not holding to Christian values that they don't believe in. Why am I surprised when Target opens their bathrooms to everyone? I'm disappointed, but why am I surprised? I know this world is not heading in a good way. Why am I surprised when marijuana is made legal? 
Why, why does that shock me? Now, it's important for us to understand that sinners act like sinners. Because Daniel practiced tolerance in his life. His wisdom led him to understand that it should not be an affront or a shock when sinners sinned. He tolerated sinners sinning. Now that's just a little awkward there. So did Paul. You know, Paul's talking about you need to stay away from certain people, and he says, now hold on. I don't mean people of the world, because that's what they do. I mean people in the church. We forget most of the time all those verses about sin and everything are written to the church. They're not written to the world telling the world you need to stop sinning because what does the world do? It sins. That is the nature of the world. Our problem as Christians is that we get personally offended when sinners sin. I get upset when they sin. And they don't hold my values. And I feel like judgment should be made on those people, on those acts. However, I know that I'm not called to judge but to reconcile. We want the sin judged, and while we hate the, say we hate the sin and love the sinner, uh, sometimes we want the sinner judged along with it too. Because they've done wrong. Now, I don't agree with homosexual marriage. I don't particularly want to see pictures of, of people kissing on courthouses. I don't want to see that. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's godly. Does it surprise me that the world does that? No, because that's what the world does. But let me tell you what, when I see a picture of that happen or it comes up on TV and suddenly I just want to take a ball bat and show them what real men act like, suddenly I've crossed over from hating sin but loving the sinner to hating the sinner too. What do I expect them to do? Daniel had tolerance. He never talked down to the king and told him, you know what, this is what you need to do. He did what was right. He didn't make everyone else. He made no one else but him and his three friends eat vegetables. We're upset when nobody else is eating vegetables. We're upset. We want the sin judge. We want the sinner judge too many times. And we have trouble with that fact, tolerating the fact that sinners sin. Because of what tolerance, uh, tolerance symbolizes today, we think if we tolerate something, that means we accept it. Daniel never accepted what Babylon was doing. He never agreed with, three years, with the three years of education he received and said this is the right way. He never agreed with it. He never agreed with what the king was doing. He didn't agree with the fiery furnace. He didn't agree with any of that stuff. And yet he didn't say anything about some stuff. The only thing that I'm accepting when I say tolerate sinners is I'm accepting the fact that sinners sin. And I'm accepting the sinner, not their sin. And this is important to realize if I'm to fulfill my biblical mandate that I must accept sinners. And I have to expect them to sin. So when I accept them, sin comes with it. That doesn't mean I accept it, but it's going to come with them. And it bothers me as a Christian world how, how we have become intolerant of sinners. Not just sin, but of sinners. And I feel pretty comfortable saying with scripture behind me that when you're marching around with signs that saying God hates certain people because of their sin, that is not right. You see, we've suddenly combined that God hates a homosexual because of their acts. Now, I do not agree with anything they do, but God does not hate that person. 
And in fact, I would venture to say that the person holding that sign and the person they're speaking against are almost in the same boat. Begin to stand up and pound our fist about all kinds of stuff. But I wonder sometimes if we need to learn how to tolerate a sinner again. The thing, well, and I'm not going to get on morals and stuff in Christianity because that's one of those rabbit holes that we'll never come out of. But see, we, we, we've begun to combine this because you know what? In, in my own personal, taking out the spiritual, if I look at my personal, there's certain things that I like and I don't like. And some things I want to fight about just because I don't like it. But it's not just about what I like and don't like. It's about what Scripture is commanding me to do. You know what? I, well, anyway. Some of us have problems with sinners. Depending on the sin. If I, if I join a... If, if I get a new job, which I may tomorrow, who knows. Um, hmm. I'll say goodbye at the end. I start a new job and I have the choice between standing next to someone that I know and for whatever reason I'm picking on this tonight, I know is a homosexual and someone that I know but has been in a monogamous relationship and espouses that and says even homosexuals should just have one partner. Or I have the choice to stand next to someone who I know is a womanizer, sleeps around and cheats on his wife. Who am I going to choose? The sinner or the sinner? Let me ask you this. Which one of them has redefined biblical marriage? You see how I, I'm starting to judge the sinner, not the sin? Because my personal preferences. Now, I, I, I struggled with this because, well, anyway. We tolerate what we think we know better and can't stand the other. No matter if that person that sleeps around was new truth at one point or not, and that homosexual was raised by homosexual parents in a place that didn't even care about God. <laughs> you know what I have problems with is I have problems with people that with people that should know better. I have problems with people that reject truth worse than a sinner. <sighs> Man, I should have brought a shovel with me tonight. I, this is my own personal opinion. This bugs the tar out of me. If it doesn't bother you, I'm not going to think bad of you or anything like that. I'll just judge the sin, not the sin. No, I'm joking. But you know what bothers me? I don't like to see all that stuff on TV when they're showing all that stuff. And, and, but you know what I hate to see as well? I hate to see some of those... Oh, man, I better duck behind. I hate to see some of those gospel singing things. When I look up there... And I see people that have spoken tongues that used to believe a one God message. Now they make fun of it and say, you don't even need the Holy Ghost. They've known truth and they've blatantly rejected truth. It doesn't matter if they're singing how great thou art or what a, a, what, whatever they're singing. They have flat out rejected truth. And Jude says, they're twice dead plucked up by the roots. Filthy sinners. But there's people that I'll accept, there's people I'll accept that Scripture tells me are worse off than a sinner. Anyway, that's my own personal opinion. 
And you can spit that bone out if you don't like it. But we spend a lot of time trying to expect others to live like us, and we forget that we are not called. Understand this. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to make people live right. Nowhere. We're called to seek them out, and we are called to reconcile them with God. There's a really interesting story. Uh, if you get the chance, I think they've made like a documentary about it. But it's a guy called Daryl Davis. He's a guy, uh, he was a musician. He's African-American out of Chicago. And he has an, an extremely unusual story. He's a very polarizing figure because he has made it in his mission in life to befriend KKK members. He's been to their weddings. He goes to their houses. They love him. There's, claim, there's, there's pictures of him with clan meetings. He's standing there. It's crazy. And, and they'll be up there spouting whatever they're spouting. And they'll, they'll tell people that are out there protesting their meeting, they'll tell them, I like this guy better than you. It's crazy. Here's the thing, though. He has, he, he, he has over 200 robes that he has collected of KKK members that he has converted. He sits down, he talks to them. He does not agree, obviously, with anything they're doing. Not a thing. He sits down and converses with them, has dinner, invites them to his house. They invite him to his house. They go to the weddings. They, they... And he's very polarizing amongst the African-American community. They don't like what he's doing. Because he, and he preaches a message of tolerance. Listen to what they have to say. You don't have to agree with it, but listen to him. And you know what he does to the people that don't agree with him? He walks them to his closet and opens it up, and he has 200 gowns lined up. He says, show me what you have. He, he has, cha- there's, there's grand wizards, like national grand wizards, state leaders, simply through tolerating, not the person, well, he tolerates the person, he doesn't, he doesn't tolerate their ideals, but he tolerates the person. <laughs> you see, and while people are pounding their fist, saying, you're wrong, I'm right, there's not a robe hanging in their closet. While I'm pounding my fist at sinners for being sinners... I'll tell you what I'm not doing is I'm not converting them. (laughs) So how does wisdom guide me in the culture in which I live? How does it guide me to pick the battles that are worth fighting? Jesus understood what he was doing. He understood this whole thing in Matthew chapter 10 verse 16, and this just sums it all perfectly. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the middle of wolves. He knew exactly what he was doing. This world's a bad place. He said, yeah, it's full of wolves and you're just a sheep. I'm sending you right in the middle of it. Thanks, Lord. Be you therefore wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Wisdom, humility. The word wise here has to do with being cautious, discreet, and thoughtful. Has nothing about up in your face. Cautious, discreet, and thoughtful. This is extremely apt when we speak about the topic of picking battles. The first thing is that wisdom has to be tied with hope. It has to be tied with humility. I enter every battle knowing it's a skirmish, that the enemy doesn't win in the end. How I enter the battles with humility, knowing that my abrupt confrontation will not persuade or engage someone else to salvation. And I use discernment and wisdom in what battle to fight. Hmm. I'm in the midst of the world. I'm in the world, but I'm a sheep, not of it. But I am in it. The wolves and sheep are not separated. They are not isolated. 
which is what will happen if I try to stand up against everything that goes against truth, even if it's just my opinion. I'll become separated before too long. I'll be the wolf and the sheep. He did not call me to be separate from the wolves. He sent me into the middle of the wolves. I can't always stand up. Neither can I always accept. I have to have wisdom. So how do I, like Daniel, manage to walk the tightrope of partial cultural assimilation without religious and moral compromise? How do I live in the world but not be of it? How do I be a sheep in the middle of wolves? There's a few things, some of them kind of practical, and I realize the time, and I want to be done more than you want me to be done. I have to determine, and, and this is not even the rough part. The rough part's another tangent. I must determine what is at stake, which can, which can only happen when I'm taking a larger view. I have to be a mature Christian to be able to see what's at stake in the long run. In this battle that I'm starting to fight, what is at stake here? I enter each decision with hope that no matter what happens, he's in control. I enter with humility in my approach that no matter who it is, no matter who it's with, if it's unbelievers or believers, but I would say I enter into a a fight with an unbeliever with even more humility. Those who don't believe the same. The first thing that I see about Daniel, how he did this, was he had consistent prayer life. He had a very consistent prayer life. And you know what? I can't cover every issue that we should or shouldn't fight because you know what? The issues seem to change daily. So we're going to look at some things that Daniel did that helped him decide which battles he was going to have to fight. I have to have a consistent prayer life. Now, I'm not sure. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly when Daniel began to pray three times a day, but we know that his prayer gave him the courage courage and guidance to do what he needed to do. We know from very early on that him and his friends began to pray when situations arose. We know that they fasted and prayed about situations. If I want to know God, if I want to have the fear of God in my life, if I want to have, as we look later, the right heart, I must get close to the heart of God. I must. I cannot have the wisdom I need without knowing God. I have to have a consistent prayer life. If there was ever a day when I need to, when when there's moments I need to stand up for truth, it's confusing when I should stand up for truth. I need to walk with God every single day. Because while we like to see it as black and white, man, there's a lot of gray areas that this world would like to present to us in our lives. I've got to have prayer because through prayer I can gain discernment as well. I can gain discernment between what is right and what is wrong, between what battle is worth fighting and which one I need to leave to the Lord. I must have prayer in my life. I must live a life of love and holiness. Daniel lived a life of love and holiness. And this can only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Ghost in my life. Love and holiness can only be accomplished through the power of the Holy Ghost. I can demonstrate love towards others, and we have one segment of Christianity that is just demonstrating love. We're just accepting, we're just going to accept this, and just all, you know, we're just going to love everyone. That's why we have the, what was I, I can't remember the name, the first binary whatever person that's no, that has been ordained into the Episcopal Church or whatever, that there's not a him or a her, they're referred to as them or they. I don't just love everybody. That's not what this is about. I don't just accept everyone in that sense like that. That's not what this is about. 
I don't just compromise. That's false grace. Don't let anyone kid you that grace just accepts everything. That is not true grace. On the other hand, I can be legalistic and holy and end up just being judgmental. And there's another portion of Christianity that all it comes across as is judgmental. That's not right either. If I want to live a life of holiness and love and understand when I need to stand up, what I need to stand up for, when I need to demonstrate humble holiness, when I need to show love, I must have the Holy Ghost in my life. And I've got to have it operating in my life every single day. Because you come up against situations where you're like, man, I'm not really sure what the right thing is to do here. I, I mean... I don't, I don't get it too much in my job right now, but I used to work a job in a hotel where people would come up and ask me which, where all the bars were. They don't ask me that too much anymore. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Tell them where to go drink? It's my job. I truly believe God gave me that job. What's worse is I was a doorman of a hotel, and you know, well, anyway, never mind. There's other places people want to go too. What do I do in the, in the job God gave me? We come across situations every day. And you know what I should do? You know what I should do? Is those guys that come up to me, or, or, or Lynn, these, these guys that come up to me, say, where should I go drink? You filthy, filthy. Do you not know what that does to your life? Do you not know what drinking does to your life? I'm going to pull out these scriptures right now. I'm going to lay my hands on you. I'm standing up for truth. Or do I say, hey, you know what? If you wait just a few minutes, I get off work, I'll walk you to the bar, and I'll join you. Surely there's a compromise somewhere in the middle. <laughs> what I would say is, see that other filthy sinner over there that works with me? Ask them. But you know what? I come across, you come across situations like that in your work. You come across situations where you're confronted. And you know what you need? You don't need a judgmental spirit. You don't just need it. You need the Holy Ghost to tell you what to do. You need to have accountability. Daniel had three friends. And you know what? When they had a problem, when they weren't sure what to do, they just didn't spout off and do, well, I died. Who's he to think? I'm going, Ugh. No? You know what? They got together and fasted and prayed about it. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. It wouldn't hurt for us to get together and pray about some situations before we just go off half-cocked and regret what we did. Here's the last thing. Well, sort of. It's a hard issue. Knowing when to fight is a heart issue. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. And I'm not talking about their heart. I'm talking about our heart. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. So first thing he decided was he was not going to defile himself. That's the first choice I'm going to make. I'm not going to be defiled. Even if they defile themselves. He wasn't mad at them for defiling themselves. He just knew he wasn't going to do it. Nor with the wine which he drank... Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And then Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. This is, the, this is the Lord speaking to Daniel. This is when he's prayed and the angel's been sent. He says, Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand 
and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. An angel was sent the day that he set his heart. You see, the battleground, I'm looking at all these fights. I'm all upset that the world's sinning. And I'm upset that sinners are out there sinning and doing bad things. And really, the first battleground is my own heart. Every battle must first be fought within my own heart. Why am I doing this? Why am I even standing up? Is it more to do with me? What are my motives? What's behind this? I must understand that, that at my heart, I can't have just being right as my mission. My mission is not to eradicate sin. Yet that's what, <laughs> that's what we try to do a lot. We just want to get rid of sin. I have to understand that I am an ambassador of Christ. So his mission is now my mission. Now, he conquered sin on the cross. That was his ultimate goal. But he was not eradicating sin while he walked on this earth. We know that he came to seek and to save the lost. His focus was not the sin, it was the lost. Christ can bring people to life. He was very consistent when he said that the way is narrow. You can't, it's not just for everyone, but he was also consistent in his actions of going into every highway and byway and finding the sinner. He came to grab the hearts of men. If men resisted the gospel, then that's where we get the verses about there's going to be division and families are going to be split up because they've decided to serve or not serve God. But he did not divide people because of sin. It was their refusal to obey what he said. And I want to remind you to look at your heart. What is the purpose for why you're standing up for what you're doing? His, mercy, his mission was reconciliation and redemption. Why are you standing up for that truth? Because it makes you mad? Because it just rouses you up? Because it's not right what that sinner is doing? My heart should be one of reconciliation and redemption. If my heart, the reason I'm standing up for truth, is any other reason than to see a soul saved, I'm missing the point. So again, Brother Berner's way back there this week. Remember when I got all up in his face? When I said, you're wrong, what are you going to do? You're evil, you're going to hell. His heart melts within him, and he falls to his knees. No. What do you do when someone gets in your face? You want to get right back in their face. Why did I do that? To see his soul saved? Because I just want to be righteous and stand for truth. My heart should be one of reconciliation and redemption. If it's anything other than seeking and saving the lost... I'm missing out on something. That was the point that Jesus came to this earth and we are his ambassadors. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence. Why? Because out of it are the issues of life. The issues of life are not out of the government. The issues of life do not come from liberals. The issues of life do not come from the Ninth Circuit Appeal. The issues of life do not come from the Supreme Court. The issues come from the heart. And if I'm not connecting with the person's heart, I'm just trying to get rid of sin, I'm missing the point. 
The only way a person will change is if their heart is affected. So let me ask you, when I stand for truth, when I think about standing for truth, and, 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 and we look at Daniel, what are my actions, what is my stance doing to their heart? What is my placard doing to that person's heart? Is the reason I'm holding that with that offensive language because I want to see them saved? Yeah, that's what you say. But where is my heart? I believe there's a battle that needs fought in my heart. And I don't, I know, I, well, I don't believe there's anyone here that would hold a placard like that. Maybe you would. Let me make this statement. And I understand, again, where we are as a nation and society. But my goal is not to make America a Christian nation. My goal is to add names to the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, while I, can be dis- while I can be disheartened and have despair, and God has given me freedoms in this country. I can cast a ballot. I can do certain things that, that, that can affect a nation to help try and get it on a path that is more godly. But my goal is not to see America become a Christian nation again. My goal is to see a name added to the Lamb's Book of Life. What, what if, what would it, that, when I stand for truth, when I make decisions, again, that, that, this is not an either or, I accept everything or I just go against everything. No. What if in the back of my mind, what if in my heart, instead of, instead of all this other stuff, I would suddenly, all of a sudden, begin to see the sinner once again, somebody who needs God? Why not, why not I quit letting their sin cloud my judgment of who they are and suddenly see who that person is again? In closing, Sister Jean said it actually Sunday. I just want to close with this as well. She mentioned focusing on the light, not on the darkness. I think that's our problem too many times. Just a reminder that as the world gets darker, and I don't want the world to get darker. I'm not hoping that the world gets darker. As Paul says, should I sin more so there's more grace? God forbid. God forbid that the world gets darker. I'm not, I just don't want it to happen. But you know what happens in darkness? Light shines brighter. Let me tell you what, if I was the enemy, maybe I am, no. If I was the enemy, I would keep it right like it is about outside, right about spiritually. That's about how I'd keep it all the time. A little bit of darkness, a little bit of light. It's hard to see the light in the dusk. You can see it a little bit. I wouldn't want it to get real dark. Let me tell you what, Joseph was a shining light in Egypt. Daniel was a shining light in Babylon. Yeah, he was a good, he was a good person. He was serving the Lord. But you know why he was so bright as well? It was so dark. If I was the enemy, I'd be trying to not let it get too dark. Because the darker it gets, even if it's some weak Christian in normal light, they're awful bright at nighttime. Never forget that my focus is not on the darkness, it's on the light. Because the darker it gets, the brighter even the tiniest of lights become. So you know what? If it does get darker, you know what? Sinners sin, the, world's, the world will sin. If it gets darker, you know what that means the church is going to do? Shine brighter. Shine brighter. We look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a wicked place. 
It's interesting as Abraham prays what God says. Lord, would you spare? And God says, you know what? If they would, they would quit sinning so much, I would. If they would turn from homosexuality, I would. If they would quit lying and cheating and stealing, I would. Nope. Had nothing to do with the sinner. Said if there was ten righteous, I would. If there was ten righteous. I wonder what would happen if we would start focusing on the light. Gates of hell are not going to prevail against us. God was willing to spare for ten righteous. Instead, we're looking at trying to change all this stuff. What if we just live our lives righteously like, like we're supposed to? What if we just fulfill the mission that God has called us to do? Why don't, instead of these massive things and we're going to uh, do all this stuff, why don't we start looking, find the heart of a sinner and try to affect it this week? What if we look at it that way? I know the world as a whole is bad. I know stuff's going against it and there's all these things being passed. But you know what? I can affect somebody's life tomorrow. I can find a sinner, look past all their sin and say, you know what? God has called me to that person. Those are the things I need to stand up for. That's where truth makes its biggest mark. We need prayer. We've got to pray. We've got to have that in our life. We've got to have accountability in our life. We need to join together. We need to have counsel and wisdom. We've got to have those things in our life. We've got to live a life of love and holiness. Speak the truth in love. We've got to have the Holy Ghost. And then I need to search my own heart. First of all, as I search my heart, am I tolerant of sinners anymore? Or are they all just a bunch of wackos I see on TV? Because we live in a day where, you know what, you can get riled up so much about everything. Man, there's some days I feel like I could take one day a week and march on seven different subjects and pick it and pick a fight at somebody and they just need a good whatever. I'd sort them out. I'm not looking to sort them out. I'm looking to reconcile them to God. I want us to stand this evening. I can thrive not just survive if I use his wisdom. There's a lot of things pull at me. Well, you should stand up for this. You should stand up for that. You know what? I would venture to say if Daniel was in our day, a lot of people would see him as a compromiser. Man, you let him change your name? You're going to school for witchcraft now? What would you think? I understand that it's two different... Babylon and America are two different places, despite how bad we think it is. But I wonder if we could just, instead of just hunkering down, instead of just creating this isolationist mentality, no, he put us as sheep right smack in the middle of the wolves. We are in the world, not of the world. We understand that. So how am I going to affect? That's the reason I'm in the middle of the wolves. How am I going to affect the world? I'm not going to affect it. Well, anyway, I've already said all that. I want us to pray. And I want us to pray that the Lord, the last thing was the battleground of the heart. You know what, Lord? Check my heart first of all here. And Lord, help me to see the sinners that you've put in my life and help me to figure out how to reconcile them to you. Lord Jesus, we come before you.